listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. I wonder this morning, if I was to ask you each individually this question, what your answer would be, and, and here's the question, it's on the screen, so it's easy for you to see. What would make you really happy right now? And I just wonder, like, there'd be a whole smattering of responses to things, you know, well, a good cup of coffee, I could really use a good cup of coffee, and that would make me really happy right now. You know, maybe you're desperate for that or something, I'm not sure. Uh, but what would make you happy? What, what would be a major blessing in your life if it was to happen in today or in the next few days, in, in the next few weeks, that, that if you knew that today, that something was on its way, something was going to happen, there would be a blessing, there would be a breakthrough, what would it be? Maybe it would be a clean bill of health from the doctor for yourself or for a loved one. Maybe it's um, if you, you know, to be married, that, that you would love to be married, or, or maybe if you are married, for your marriage to be stronger, to be better. Maybe uh, what would make you happy right now, you would think, would be some, some extra money. I could use some money, and it would just really take a lot of pressure off things, and, and, and I could breathe a little easier. Maybe it's to lose some weight or to get into better shape, and then I'd feel better about myself, and I'd feel happy, you know, happier if this was so. Or, or maybe it's to buy a house. Man, if I could just stop renting and buy a house, that would make me so happy to have a place of my own. Or maybe it's you have a house, but it's a different house, and, you know, maybe upsizing or downsizing, whatever it might be. You know, just, just, you know, if you could just get a different house. Or maybe it's to get out of debt. Or, or maybe it's something even more serious than that. It is for a loved one to come to Christ. Or for a prodigal to return back to the Lord. Maybe for a church, something that would make us happy would be a church building. So we didn't have to do set up and take down. And just so grateful and thankful for the teams that, the, the individuals that work at this week in and week out. And, and uh, put a little plug in, we could use more help in those areas all the time. Those who serve, you know, uh, more workers in, in Harvest Kids would make um, our Harvest Kids leaders much more happy. Um, all of these different things, you know, th that we could list. In, and it would be amazing if I would have just had you all write it out on a piece of paper we'd be probably quite intrigued by what it might be. And, and uh, you know, for some of us, maybe the thing you would have written down are just some of the simple pleasures in life. Like this, you know, like my wife and my daughter are currently in Australia. Here's a picture of them. Just uh, they're enjoying Brisbane. Uh, well, I guess they're sleeping right now, but they're going to be going to the Australian zoo and they're having a great time. And so they're in, you know, kind of a, a happy place, you could call it. I guess they're enjoying it and the weather is good. And, and, uh, Nate and I are left batching it, fending for ourselves. But you know what? This made us pretty happy this week. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did quite well, uh, at least one meal. And, and check out that Saskatchewan or fried or steak knife as well. You know, like that makes me happy looking at a plate like that and knowing that I get to sink my teeth in this. You know, that, that can put someone into their happy place. And, and for a vegetarian, it wouldn't. And, and I apologize for that. I was going to show the bowl of salad. Oh, there wasn't a bowl of salad to go with that. Oh, well, you know, my wife's not home. You know, and so, so, so th some of these things can make us kind of happy and, and, you know, and, 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 and they're temporary. And, but I would venture to guess that most of the things that we would write down just spur the moment when we're asked that question, the majority of the things that we would list would eventually or ultimately fail to deliver the happiness that we thought it would. Because there's always something else. Something else comes along. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not belittling any of the things I mentioned or even belittling the little pleasures and the blessings that come, on, that come in life. I'm just saying that so much of what we are pursuing, what we're dreaming about, what we're hoping for, and, and even eventually may even achieve, they're temporary. It's temporary fulfillment and happiness, leaving us searching, wanting, waiting for something more or for something different. And sadly, we see in society how having lots of pleasures, lots of money, lots of success, or lots of fame doesn't guarantee any happiness at all. This past week, just two more celebrities who took their lives and, and, and you, you're just sad and you, you would think, like, what is wrong? These people have it all, so to speak. They have fame and fortune, a following of people and people who look up to them and appreciate them and, and have inspired them in so many ways. And yet they've come to the end, end of it all and they say it's not worth it and, and they take their lives prematurely. We see across our nation, around our world, here in North America, suicide rates continue to climb. I, I, I've heard they're up 30%. That's in the United States. And, and, and I'm not sure, it probably wouldn't be far off in Canada. And I heard just yesterday that, that uh, one out of five um, North Americans, it, it's Americans, but it's probably very the same in Canada, that one in five are on antidepressants or on uh, antipsychotic medications. Something's not working. And yes, there is a place for medications. I'm not, I'm not belittling that, but it, it's something is wrong in our world to, to know that one in five are struggling in these ways. And, and, and yet God's word gives us the recipe for happiness, the recipe for a blessed life. And so we're starting this new series today that's going to take us through the summer on the Beatitudes. As it took us a number of months to go through the entire book of Daniel, it's going to take us a number of months to go through these short verses that make up the Beatitudes that we'll be reading a little later. We're going to take these words and, 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 and these words, these instructions, this teaching of Jesus, and, and I trust not only hear them, not only learn about it, but apply them to our lives. The Beatitudes are all about a blessed life about a blessed life, and, and, and some would even say a happy life, because that's essentially what Jesus is talking about here when you see the word blessed. He's talking about a happy life. And Jesus in the Beatitudes basically gives us eight ways to be truly happy. Now, the Beatitudes are a part of a much larger teaching of Jesus that takes us from Matthew chapter 5 right to the end of chapter 7, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Jesus teaches about kingdom life. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. This is what life as a believer in Jesus Christ will look like. And so Jesus painted this picture on the Galilean hillside 2,000 years ago. And he talks about a blessed life, what it means to have a blessed life. And, and here as he paints this picture is a portrait of what we can look at even in our own lives and what he is desiring to do in and through us. As he speaks to his disciples from the mountainside, he's speaking to us today. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, just, just a little bit of history or, or a little understanding here. This is in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And this is no doubt a record of the greatest sermon by the greatest teacher and preacher this world has ever or will ever see. Because it's by Jesus himself. 
It is the most profound teaching. There's nothing like it in this world. And the words are rich and the words are powerful. And in this greatest sermon, he teaches us the essence of salvation and what it looks like to live the Christian life. This Sermon on the Mount realigns what and, and paints the picture, but then realigns our thinking because sometimes that can get out of whack what kingdom living looks like. Now, the entire sermon, if you were to take and read chapter 5 to chapter 7, it may take you about maybe 10 minutes to, depending on how fast or how slow you read. But probably 10 to 15 minutes, you will read through this entire sermon that Jesus gave. But it is believed that the original, as he was teaching on the mountainside, was actually quite a bit longer than that, probably lasting a number of hours. And what Matthew has done here, he's summarized it. He's given the summer, summary or the distillation of Jesus' teaching here in these verses. And so it's powerful teaching and it's concentrated teaching. And this is why we need to pour over these words very carefully. But before we dig into the sermon and, and start off with the Beatitudes here, and especially the first Beatitude, we have to even further understand the context in which it is given. It's always important when you're studying the Word of God that you just don't look at one verse because you can set yourself up in a very... Uh, dangerous way, and, and many times people will do this, they'll pick and choose different verses, but you need to look at, it, look at it and understand the context in which it is written. And so we want to do this here this morning so we understand the context in which Jesus was writing here to his disciples. And so this context was given, and, and, and we're just going to read some of the context. We get it in verses 1 and 2, and you can follow along in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1 and 2. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, we have to remember that in Israel's history prior to this, there was 400 years of silence. There was 400 years since the last prophet had spoken. 400 years with no prophetic utterance from the prophets. And I am sure that no doubt that, that, the, that the Jewish people who were awaiting the Messiah, who were looking forward to the Messiah, people wondering, where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We've had these years of silence, no prophets, no judges, no nothing. There's been silence, it would seem. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on into the scene here. In Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus is baptized. And we see the baptism of Jesus, and, 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 and it moves on from there. We end up seeing a little bit, and you can read those verses there at the start of Jesus' ministry, but we understand that his ministry was basically three and a half years. And it could be divided up into the following. You may want to take these notes because it just may be helpful for you to jot some of this down. Jesus' ministry could be divided up into the three and a half years, basically into one-year segments. First of all, the year of obscurity. And then the year of popularity, and then the year of opposition. That's when the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, came hard after him and, and eventually put him on the cross. And so where we're at here in Matthew chapter 5 is the year of popularity. So, so this is where we're situated here. And, and in this year of popularity, and in chapter 4 we see this, we see massive crowds that are following Jesus. Here, crowds by 5,000, 10,000, even some would believe even larger than that, are coming to Jesus from all over, from, from 100 miles away or even further. People are coming. They've heard about Jesus, this miracle man. And, and there on, on the hillside or out in the wilderness or wherever that he would meet people in the streets of the city, people would come to Jesus and, and there would be this mixture of desperation and joy. These people would come to him traveling, 
with leprosy traveling as their last hope, their last option to come to Jesus in hopes that maybe he could miraculously heal them. And Jesus did it. And as people would come to Jesus and they would see Jesus and, 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 and he would speak to them and he would lay a hand on them or whatever way that he would choose to heal them in that moment, to heal them of an illness or a disease or to cast out the demons, the torment that's been with them for, for many years and, and all of these different things that were taking place in the lives of people, Jesus was healing them. And so you have desperation and then you have people who have experienced the miracles and are free and they're filled with joy and and. and enthusiasm because they can walk or, or the leprosy is gone. They can reemerge into society once again or the, the demons that have been haunting and hounding them for years, maybe even since birth, are no longer there. They're set free and so you have this desperation. You have this joy. And so this is what is happening here on the hillside on this day and leading up to this moment that Jesus gives this sermon. In fact, John's gospel at the end of, of chapter 21, it, it tells us that if all of the things that Jesus had done here while he was here on this earth, if every story was recorded, the New Testament records many of them, but it says if every story, if everything that Jesus did while he was here on earth had been written down, John surmises, he says, I would guess that the world would not be able to contain the books that it would take. And so we know that Jesus touched many needs. He touched the lives of, of, of countless numbers of people. And so we see Jesus reaching looking out over the sea of humanity. And, and the place where he is, is preaching this is uh, a very beautiful location. It would have been overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And it says that he went up on the mountain. Well, they call it mountains. We may not necessarily call it a mountain, but this is believed in the general area where he would have preached from, from, from behind where this photographer was taking a picture is actually a church that has been set up there in commemoration of the Sermon of, uh, on the Mount. And so this is believed to be the place where Jesus would speak as he's overlooking the Sea of Galilee, but down below are the multitudes of people that had come to him. And, and we see this uh, very, uh, a very real-time kind of picture of, of what is taking place place, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, the multitudes of people, and then notice it says, he sat down. Now, this was actually a custom in the day, uh, and, and I was thinking it might be kind of cool if we adopted this kind of custom. When a rabbi would get ready to teach, he would actually sit down. So, you know, I was thinking maybe I could sit, and what does the audience do? What does the crowd do when a rabbi sits down? They stand up, so stand up. Come on. I know you're comfortable and, you know, you're going to have to push that button and put those little leg rests down. So what would it be like? I'm comfortable, well, relatively, but, you know, and some of you aren't even standing. I'm telling you. I, I understand age and different things like that. But, but he would preach a sermon and it would go on quite possibly for a good number of hours and he would preach, but it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of authority. And then it also says that he opened his mouth, which again was a stylistic way of saying, listen up. As Matthew is writing this, he's saying, listen up, because he has something to say that's really important. And so here, Jesus is sitting down. He's taking a seat of authority. He's taking a seat of power. And now he's opening his mouth. And so it means, hey, folks, listen up. I've got something to say. You can be seated because I'm really not that comfortable here and I don't think you are either. And so 
It's just a good way to wake, wake you up and make sure you're with me here. You know, so if you remember one thing from the sermon, you might remember that aspect. And, and uh, actually, we're going to aim higher, and we're going to aim that we're all going to allow God's word to change us here this morning as we understand these truths. And so this is kind of an important context to understand that, that Jesus is, is speaking. But who does it tell us that he is speaking to? Is he speaking to the crowds? No, it, it says here, the end of verse 1, it says, His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, starting in verse 2, and taught them. So, this message was aimed at his disciples, his followers, but it was also in the earshot, no doubt, of the multitudes. No doubt, there were others that would speak, and, and people would say that in this region where he would speak, his voice would easily carry some great distance. And so here is Jesus, he is speaking to his disciples, but he has his eyes on the multitudes. And this is really important, folks, for us to know. That Jesus, he speaks to us as his disciples, but he wants us to be aware of those who do not yet know him. Those who are far off from God, those who are hurting, those who need, a, need salvation, those who need a touch from the Lord. And so he's, he's speaking this to his disciples, but he is keeping his eye on the multitude because we know that our God desires that no one should perish. But this was aimed to be teaching for those who were already followers of his. You see, the danger is in thinking that this is for the multitudes, this is for the unsaved, the unbelievers, the skeptics, would lead them to perhaps believe that his teaching and doing what he says here is a way that you could earn your way for salvation. This is a way that you could be saved. That by doing what Jesus says, these things will automatically mean that you will find a place in God's kingdom. And this is clearly not the case. We are not saved by our works, by our good works, by our good actions. We're not saved in that way at all. God's word is very clear. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches how we are to live as believers of Jesus Christ, as followers of his, how we are to think, how we are to act. And I'd encourage you even to be reading this sermon in, in your daily quiet time that over the next number of, of months, you would become familiar, very familiar with this teaching. And especially to concentrate here on the Beatitudes where we will be spending, as I already said, uh, the bulk of our summer teaching will be from this. You know that Jesus, his heart continues to remain with the multitudes. That's why he came, so that lost people would be saved. But then so that saved people would be discipled and to grow into what he is teaching. And so we see kingdom life is outlined for us through this message. But now, the sermon actually begins with something called the Beatitudes. And so, the, again, the, this is the bulk where we'll, we'll be spending our time this summer season. And some have referred to the Beatitudes of Jesus Christ as the beautiful attitudes. Or eight declarations that Jesus makes of blessedness. Eight, statement, eight statements made by Jesus here that lead to ultimate happiness. Remember we had that whole list, you know, I gave a list of different things that could make us happy. Well, what Jesus is telling us here is the way to true happiness, to a truly blessed life. And 
The danger is that so oftentimes when we think of blessing or blessed life, we will oftentimes be drawn to think of external pleasures, things that happen, you know, around us and, 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 and things that happen in a positive way, in a positive way in our lives, you know, kind of like that hashtag, you know, hashtag blessed, you know, and, and so sometimes we might think, well, you know, I'm kind of hashtag blessed um, by going outdoors, Maybe not today, but by going outdoors and enjoying God's beautiful creation all around us. And, and we're pretty spoiled in this region to be able to enjoy seeing that. And so you look at God's creation and you go, hashtag blessed. Uh, just such a blessing. Or your restless, teething baby falls asleep finally and there's quietness. And you say, oh, what a blessing. Or you get a flat tire on your car and you take it to the repair shop and you go to pay. And they say, hey, no charge on this one. You go, oh, what a blessing. Thank you. That's great. Or the surgery was a success, and, and you say that's a blessing. Or you got the job, or you got that certain contract, and, 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 and things, you know, got that sale, or you got that house, and, and you're just like, oh, just such a blessing. Just, again, overwhelmed with thanksgiving. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, these are reasons to be thankful. These are all blessings but they're not the ultimate blessings. And what this sermon talks about and the Beatitudes talk about are the ultimate blessings. Blessings that flow not from external things that happen, but blessings that flow uh, from the inside out. It's blessings that are not dependent on circumstances, but rather on a constant, loving, heavenly Father who pours into our lives. But what these Beatitudes talk about and the way to blessing, I have to warn you, I have to warn you up front that they're not going to make a lot of sense. You see, the way or the path of true and ultimate blessing is not what we think. It's not what society has taught us a blessed life would be. Or our own just selfish nature will often think what it is. This is why the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes are often considered counterintuitive intuitive teaching or paradoxical teaching or upside-down kingdom teaching. Hence the title of this message series. Because everything that we are going to even hear in the next few moments just, just goes against the grain of what we would say would bring about a blessing and the blessed life. And so we're going to read here and we're going to read from chapter um, 3 uh, to chapter 11. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now culture and our minds will automatically think blessed are the rich. Yet Jesus says blessed are the poor. Culture says, blessed are those who are happy. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those, our world says, or our mind says, who are proud and confident and mighty and amazing. 
have a hard time, I had a hard time this week watching, especially the NBA basketball finals, where you just see, just, it just seems like a concentration of arrogance and cockiness. And, and you see that in so much of, of sports. You see it so much in our culture, in, whether that be in entertainment. You see so much of it in the workplace. And we can see it in our own lives. The world says, blessed and happy are those who are proud, who are confident, who are mighty. And Jesus says, blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the humble. Our world says, blessed are those who have need of nothing. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst. Jesus is telling us here, this is the recipe for a blessed life. This is the true hashtag blessed life. Nine times in these nine verses, eight Beatitudes from this, we see the word blessed. And it talks about this is the happy life. In fact, the word blessing or the word blessed here in the Greek actually means happy. But it's not like happy birthday or happy new year. This is more of a declaration and a statement about something much greater than that. You see, the Jews would use this word in the original Greek. This was to bestow blessing and favor upon a person. And this is talking about the blessing, the favor of God upon a life. Someone who is finding their satisfaction and fulfillment, a deep joy in their soul that comes from God. It's not simply a feeling we have towards God. It is much greater than that. It is what God thinks about us. You ever think about that? What does God think about you? Well, it says here that he thinks of us in some very blessed ways. Jesus is talking about an inward happiness here, not based on external circumstances, but an internal happiness, a joy a blessed life. And so today we're going to look at the first beatitude in verse 3. And it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Love for you to memorize this. And then each week as we work through this, that you would memorize these beatitudes. This would be incredible reminders for us to have and to have growing in, in not just our, our understanding and our memory of it, but instituting it into our lives on a daily basis. And so this first beatitude is so important and it, it's an essential one for us to be able to look at. And I encourage you to go along with this, to perhaps write this down as it may help to encourage you to understand this a little bit more. And here, here's an important st statement in regards to this first beatitude. Spiritual bankruptcy leads to kingdom blessing. Spiritual bankruptcy leads to kingdom blessing. This beatitude is the key in understanding all of the others. Not only is this a teaching about how to be happy, but Jesus is teaching us how to enter the kingdom. This is for entrance into the kingdom of God. This is how a person comes to Christ. This is how one is saved. And so you can't miss this. This is why Jesus puts it first and foremost. This is the first thing out of his mouth. He wants people saved. So oftentimes when it comes to preaching, we're told or teaching, they call, talk about a hook, 
a look, a book or something like that. They have, and, and it's like at the start of the message, you got to, you know, or start of your talk or whatever it is, you got to say something memorable. You got to say something to engage people. Sometimes they say, if you don't engage people in the first few minutes of your message, they're like, oh, this is going to be a snooze and, and, and they just lose you. And so, you know, pastors and teachers and different people need to come up with some kind of creative kind of, you know, statement or, 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 or picture or something to get people thinking and get people engaged. Well, Jesus, the ultimate teacher and preacher, he makes a statement here of utmost import, importance, and he puts it down right here in his very first statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual bankruptcy leads to kingdom blessing. This is the key one. It all starts here with us being poor in spirit. It's realizing that we have nothing in and of ourselves, we have nothing. There's an old hymn that all this week, as I was looking through this passage, one line, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. We bring nothing for our salvation. We bring nothing to God. It's people who understand we are poor in spirit. It's the realization we have nothing. It's not my awesomeness, but rather my emptiness. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, our bankruptcy before God. It's knowing that every one of us, we're sinners and we're under the holy wrath of God and deserving nothing but his judgment, which will result in eternal separation from him. And knowing that we have nothing to offer him, nothing to honor him with. The poor in spirit is a Greek term which, which basically kind of means and, 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 and they would have understood it in this day as a beggar out on the street. Someone who's cowering and cringing like that beggar out on the street who can't even look you in the face and just says, help me, help me. I'm not talking about a con man beggar who has figured out a way to get money falsely. I'm talking to somebody who understands their, their state they understand they have nothing. They are poor. They have no wealth, no influence, no bank account, no position, no honor, no stocks pile of savings anywhere, but are living in day-to-day -day dependence. They have nothing, absolutely nothing. Now, he's not talking about a false humility or a false poor in spirit, you know, like, you know, going around saying, oh, I just stink. Oh, I'm just so bad. I'm just, you know, and, and, and just in, in, in a kind of a sick and a whatever kind of way looking for people to pump you up and, and, and looking to encourage you through that. That's, that's just another form of pride. It's a desperation. It's a desperation before God that we have nothing. There's no surplus in our lives. And that is the what poor in spirit is all about, that where there's a poverty of spirit before God. And this is the starting point for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the only way that we can be accepted by God. To be truly and completely accepted by God is to come before him in this way and to believe this, that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that he lived a perfect life, and he died on a bloody cross for, the sin, for our sins, for my sins. And that he rose again in victory and through faith in him and through him alone we are saved. And when we turn to him in this way, in this desperation, this poverty, knowing who we are, we are like a beggar who can't even look him in the face and say, oh God, I bring nothing to you 
I come as a sinner. I come in need of your grace. O Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we confess that to him, when we come with nothing in my hand and we turn away from the path that we've been living in, we choose and we decide from this day forward, I want to follow God's way, his word, his path for my life. We're not only saved from wrath, we're not only have our sins forgiven, but his spirit is now living in, in our lives, empowering and strengthening us, enabling us to live the life that we cannot live outside of him, his grace and his mercy in us and his spirit. In fact, turning your Bibles to Luke 18 because we see a story here that just probably, I mean, the parable that Jesus tells here about two men just paints this picture and, and, and oftentimes the state of our own hearts before God and the state of someone who is poor in spirit before God. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says, He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they thought they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, these people, they had a really good ability at looking down on everyone, looking at everyone else's sins, everyone else's faults, and somehow in a sick way boosting themselves up, at least in their own minds, but not before God. It says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector was standing far off. He would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his Breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say to this? He says, I tell you this. This man, pointing to the tax collector, this scoundrel, this infidel, according to the, why is he even in the temple here today? Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the tax collector was the one who was poor in spirit. And he comes to God with this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he was the one who had God's righteousness accredited to his account. This is the first step for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. The first steps towards living a blessed life. It comes through recognizing our own spiritual poverty. No one can, no one ever will get into the kingdom or will know even true happiness and blessedness into their life until we have come to that place of spiritual bankruptcy before God. This is essential. You could sit in church for years upon years, hear sermon after sermon, and having not come to this place in your own personal life, may not be headed towards the kingdom of God. You may miss. It starts with this poverty of spirit, those who are poor in spirit. A.W. Tozer, great author and pastor, wrote this. He said, the blessed ones who possess the kingdom 
are they that have repudiated every external thing and have rooted from their hearts all the sense of possessing. They are no longer slaves to the tyranny of things. He says, those are the ones who possess the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here in this statement. This poverty. It's not just in the worst things in our lives. Not just, oh God, be merciful to me. I sinned again. I've been thinking wrongly. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling in this area. I'm a liar. I've gotten angry. I've done all of these different things. Oh God, here am I. You know, and it's not just bringing our worst things to God. It's even bringing our best to God in this way. Our righteous activities and our righteous pride that so oftentimes can flow from that, our acts of serving, our acts of giving, our family heritage or our long history in church and, and, and serving the Lord or, you know, the spiritual disciplines that I've been able to uphold for many years or our resources that God has given to us. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6, six says, all of our good works, all of our righteousness are like filthy rags to God. It doesn't mean anything. It's our heart that he's after, a poor and desperate heart. It goes on to say that in in Isaiah 66, that someone who is contrite, who trembles at his word, the Lord will not despise. The Lord brings near. Psalm 51, David, great man of faith, a great man of sin, but a great man who also came to know the forgiveness and the redemption of the Lord. Said in Psalm 51, he says, a broken and a contrite heart, God won't despise. He won't despise that. Did you know that right now you have the relationship with God that you have determined? You and I have, where you're at right now with God, you're the one who is determined. You see, God's word says, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. If we're not drawn near to him, he's not able to draw near to us. But when we draw near to him, he comes to us. We're taking that first move. And the first move is coming to him with a broken and a contrite heart. Being poor, seeing ourselves for who we are, poor in spirit. Nothing in my hand I bring. It's only by faith to his cross that we cling. You cannot enter the kingdom any other way. And folks, this is how we come to know Christ and this is how we grow in Christ. You see, this is a continual move on our behalf. This is a continual statement of our heart, realizing that we need him moment by moment. And folks, I probably stink the most at this in my own life. So oftentimes I can think, oh, I got this one. I can work on this sermon. I can, I can knock it out of the park. I can, you know stand up and and be able to preach and and week after week and this week especially hard and now this morning it all made sense is that so oftentimes I still want to bring some ounce of myself to it I want to bring some of my I don't know humor if I have that or some of my thinking which maybe I don't have an awful lot of you know but 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 somehow this is Meldon this is something Meldon is doing and and I again this morning And yesterday morning, I need to do it again tomorrow morning. And the next morning is coming before the Lord and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need you. God, I come with a poverty of spirit. Would you fill me anew and afresh every day? It's repudiating any of those things in our lives that we are holding on to that somehow 
makes us believe that we have somehow earned some kind of right status before God because we cannot do that. And so it's a daily thing. The poverty of spirit must be applied across the broad spectrum of the Christian life. It's knowing and admitting every day that we don't have the sufficient resources in and out of, our, in a, of ourselves to, to live out the challenges that we're going to face. When we start to feel capable and start thinking, I've got this, I can power through this, I, I've got this, when it comes to our marriages or to our parenting or to our work or even to our Christian service, we're not going to experience the power of God's blessing and the power of God's power flowing in and through us. We're going in our own strength and our own power. It's when we depend on God in this poverty of spirit, when we depend on him daily for wisdom and power and strength and mercy and for his guidance, this is when we access his power and this is when the blessing of God flows in us so it will flow through us. This is where we dig into the deep well of his power and his strength and the power of the Holy Spirit in and through us. It's where he restores, it's where he strengthens, and it happens as we're brought low day after day. This isn't a one-time thing. This is how we come to know Christ, and this is how we continue to grow in him. And then finally, just look at this. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you know what the good news is there, folks? It's already, and it's not yet. Notice what it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who comes to Christ in this way, anyone who comes to God the Father, poor in spirit, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. Cleanse me of my sins. It says, for theirs is, not one day, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom living starts today. We are child, we are children, we are sons, daughters, we are kings, we are queens in the kingdom of God. Today, it happens in a moment. And so it happens now and it's not yet. It will be one day when glorification happens, when sanctification has worked its course through our lives and we are glorified the day that we see him face to face, the day that we are in heaven. We will experience his kingdom that's the not yet, because last time I checked, everyone here is still breathing. And I hope we'll stay that way to the end of this sermon, at least. It's a already and not yet. It says theirs is, it means at this point of poverty, again, folks, kingdom living begins. Kingdom blessing begins today. It is his, it's kingdom grace and his mercy his peace, his joy, his wisdom that is available to us and through us. We'll have his comfort when we face sorrow. We will have his peace as we go through the storms. It's already and it's one day to be fully fulfilled so it's not quite yet in its fullness. One day we will receive the full inheritance of his blessing. It's already and not yet. See, folks, when there's a great emptiness in our lives, it frees up and it makes it so that there can be a great filling. Great poverty leads to great riches. 
And without those, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. May we see it every day in our lives that it's not my goodness, it's my badness. It's not my merit, it's my misery. It's not my standing, but instead it is my falling before God. It's not my riches, it's my need for him. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level, and that's where we can all stand, and that's where we all ought to stand. If you're here today and you've never known this poverty of spirit, I say this carefully, I say it delicately, but I say it according to the word of God, and I tell you truthfully. If you have never been to this point of poverty, of spirit, you are not part of the kingdom. It's only as we come poor in spirit do we enter the kingdom. It's not based on us going to church, us being baptized, us going to Sunday school, having a stellar record attendance at Boys Brigade or Pioneer Clubs or Awanas or whatever kind of kids program you might have been a part of. It's not through memorizing tons and tons of scripture. The only way that we are saved it is by coming in this poverty of spirit position before God. It says before theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where it starts. And if you don't know this, maybe you've been leaning in your life on your heritage or your service before God, religious ceremonies or your resume, and it doesn't count, doesn't cut it with God. It doesn't count. Or perhaps you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but in reality, it was just kind of like, hey, sounds like a good option in my life. Kind of like that app on your phone. So it's like, you know what, that's a good app to have because, you know, it's a good thing to fall back on. And so, so, so we say a prayer and, 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 and perhaps are baptized and we go on and, 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 and we continue on in our lives in that way and yet we've never had this poverty of spirit. Today can be a day where you become poor in spirit. It says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today is the day that all followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to, again, humble ourselves at the foot of the cross and say, oh God, Nothing I bring to you, but I receive your grace and your mercy. And it's into a heart, it's into a life like that, our God runs to. And he will fill us with his fullness, his power, his grace, his mercy, to be able to live a life beyond compare. If you don't know Christ today, if you're not living in his kingdom today, I encourage you to do that today. And then tomorrow and the next day and for the rest of our lives, would we see ourselves in this poverty of spirit state, coming daily as beggars before God, nothing in our hands but coming to a merciful Savior. This is the place of real blessing. This is the way to a blessed life, a happy life. And an indicator that kingdom life is ours, that God is working and moving in our spirit is a desire to be obedient to his word. How are you doing at being obedient to his word as he speaks to you through his spirit, as he speaks to you through his written word? Are you being obedient to his word today? Are you forgiving who you need to forgive, not holding on to grudges, not allowing bitterness to ruin and rule your life? Ask God's strength and mercy to be able to help because now coming to him with poverty and spirit enables him to give that strength for that struggle with sin, that addiction, that problem. He's real and he's powerful. An initial step of a believer in Christ is to be baptized. 
Going public with your faith. This is what Jesus calls not people who are not followers. This is what he's calling his followers to do. As we come to him as poor in spirit, as we are his children, one of the first steps is to identify him with him in baptism and believer baptism. It's going public with your faith, identifying with Jesus Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection. As you heard earlier in the announcements, we're having a baptism service coming up in a few weeks. And if you haven't been baptized upon confession of your faith, strongly encourage you to not ignore what God's word has to say in this. You can take those steps today to, to see that happen. We have a number of candidates so far and we're trusting that there will be more. But perhaps you're sitting here and say, it's baptized, I'm good, I'm done. But then also God says, what's next? You have to remember that when you were baptized, it was also a commitment and a declaration to do whatever God is calling you to do. What is he calling you to do today? What areas of obedience are you lagging behind on? What areas of sin have you allowed to creep into your life? What pleasures have you allowed to take over and take over a place for God? Come to him in a broken spirit. Come to him as the beggar did in this story. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and would you fill me anew? And you'll walk out of here justified. You will walk out of here cleansed and forgiven. And we do that every day.